So my name's Sarah. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the woman who usually stands up here during the welcome, and that's my only part, and I still mess it up most weeks. Um, and so by the grace of God, Pastor Aaron has trusted me to do this. Um, my daughter's words of advice this morning was just don't puke, Mom. Thank you. So here we go. Let's hope I don't puke. So my job here, I wear a lot of hats. I know there's a lot of confusion sometimes, so I just want to get it out there. I run our Nazarene Community Resource Center. It's a handful to say. Um, our NCRC, it's a 5013 Compassionate Ministry nonprofit, and our only goal is to show God's love to those in the Lakeshore community. And my other hat is I work at the church, too. Um, I run our first impressions team, so the people who gave you bulletins, opened the doors, I hope they did that this morning, and, give, and cafe, the donuts and the coffee. I also help run our women's ministry with a team of awesome women. And then I'm lucky enough, I get to lead Bible studies at Muskegon Community College in partnership with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. That's a little bit about who I am. I'm going to be honest, I didn't want to preach this sermon today. And don't get me wrong, I am so excited, minus my nerves, to be here and preach. I just didn't want to preach on this specific topic. And Pastor Aaron, six months ago, said, do you want to preach on July 2nd? You can't tell him no. So I said, yeah. And so I had six months. He said, you can preach on anything you want from the Bible, obviously. And so God immediately put it on my heart that I need to preach on grief. I don't want to preach on grief. It means I have to talk about some really dark times in my past. It means that I could potentially cry on the stage. Um, Mac yesterday asked me um, if I was excited, and I said, yeah, I just don't want to cry. So my only goal is to not cry today. So hopefully let's all pray for that. Um, so I put grief on the back burner, and I said, we're going to find something else. And so I spent four months reading through different books of the New Testament, hoping something would jump out to me. And only the grief passages jumped out to me. And then I bought this devotional from Lisa Turkhurst, and I read it. It was supposed to be um, 100 days. I read it in like uh, three months. Um, no, three weeks. And so um, I was hoping that a topic from her would jump out. Grief jumped out. And so my last ditch effort was to look at the lectionary online. And if you don't know what the lectionary is, I didn't know until um, two months ago. It's this thing that's online. It's created for um, a bunch of different denominations. It was created by the church a long time ago, where there's four passage options, from two from the New Testament, usually a psalm or proverb, and then an Old Testament, every Sunday for three years, and then they repeat. And I said, surely, July 2nd, 2023, when they picked it decades ago, it was not going to have a grief one. So I looked at the two New Testament ones, and I was like, eh, I don't really feel excited about those. Then I saw a psalm, and I love the psalms. I read the book of Psalms along with a devotional throughout COVID, and it really helped me see hope and excitement during a time when it was pretty dark. And so I look up Psalm 13, and you all can probably guess what Psalm 13 is about. It's about grief and sorrow. And so here I am, hoping I don't cry. So I'm going to start out with a question. Have you ever went to pray and left something out of the prayer? Sometimes we don't pray for something again because we feel like maybe we pray for it too often. Sometimes we don't ask for forgiveness for a sin or a bad choice you make that maybe is not a sin, but it's something that God might not love, like gossiping. But we feel like we don't want to ask forgiveness because we know we're probably going to do it tomorrow. Sometimes we don't want to express our anger at something that's happened because maybe we don't want to offend God 
Or maybe we don't want to seem ungrateful for all the things we do have to praise him about. Let me give you an example of that last one. So I used to believe that um, you could only pray about praises and petitions. And so I could praise God for all the great things happening in my life. And for those things I didn't like, I could petition him and hope for a change. But that left a giant hole Because what do I do with the things that have already happened, and I don't want to praise God for them? My mom died two weeks into my senior year of high school, and I moved in with legal guardians. That year should have been full of excitement, should have been making lifetime memories with my friends one last time. Instead, it was this year clouded by this immense grief that I felt. I had not just lost my mom. I lost my childhood home, I lost my four cats, and I lost any semblance of normalcy that I had somehow created over the year of my mom being sick. And I had spent that entire year begging God every single day to save my mom, to give her a miracle. And he didn't. And so, when that miracle didn't come, I was devastated and I was angry at God Not just for taking her, but taking her at what seemed like the worst possible time in my life. And so, I believe that good Christians, we don't get angry at God, and we don't tell others we're angry at God. So I bottled it up, pretended everything was normal, and over time, I just stopped praying. Because I no longer had a lot of things to praise God for, and I started to think that those petitions I was giving him, he wasn't listening anyway. And so I distanced myself from God. But our God does not stop pursuing us, and I'm so thankful for that, because when I started college, I found a Christian group, and I heard a sermon that changed my life. The preacher said, we can have emotion when we pray, because God can handle our emotions. He gave them to us. I learned I can be angry with God, and his love does not change for me. He loves me no matter what. I learned that it's okay to speak truth to God, even when the truth seems upsetting or hurtful, because God can not only handle it, but he can help us overcome it. This logic not only changed my understanding of God, but it helped me to begin that healing process. That night, through angry tears, I told God I was mad at him. I was mad at him for taking my mom. I was mad at him for making me move in with legal guardians and not my dad. And I was mad at him for tearing me away from the church I had grown up with. And that list went on and on, and I just, I had a lot of pent-up anger. And with each statement of anger and blame, I felt this peace wash over me. I don't know if you've gone from angry to peaceful in like two seconds, but it's a wild ride. (laughs) I can only relate it to like fainting, where you're there and then you're not the next second. It just, it was instant. And I realized I had let this anger build up this giant wall between God and I. I couldn't see him anymore. I couldn't hear him. But that night, I started pushing that wall towards him, and I wanted him to take that wall, and it started to crumble. And through those cracks, I felt God's peace and God's unconditional love reach me for the first time in a year. It breaks my heart that we feel we can't be honest with God, that we can't have emotion when we pray. When we look at the Bible, we see his people pray with intense emotions and heartbreaking honesty throughout it. The Psalms is full of cries of desperation and anger. Lamentations literally means the passionate expression of grief and sorrow. 
Even Jesus cried out with intense emotion on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's safe to assume that if these people and these examples can pray with strong emotions, then we can as well. So today's passage is an example of this type of prayer. It's Psalm 13, a Psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So there is some discrepancy on what specific event the Psalm of David is in reference to. He had a lot of events like this. Um, but the overwhelming agreement is that David is under this burden of what felt like never-ending sorrow and trouble. It could have been from a political issue, a personal rivalry, a family issue. There was a lot of them. Or it could be a sickness. But either way, David's lamenting something. And he begins the psalm by asking God how long for times. David feels alone, abandoned by God, and overwhelmed by sorrow that feels never-ending. When thinking about how David must feel while writing this, one major example came to my mind, and this was during that time that I had really distanced myself from God. One night, I was driving home to my dorm room from my hometown up to Allendale, so it's all back roads. I was speeding. It was pouring down rain. It's pitch black, and I'm crying and I hydroplane. And once my tires catch the cement again and I catch my breath again, I had a thought. Maybe I should do it again. Maybe I should let my car go into that giant ditch right there because by the time someone finds me, I would be dead. By the time I would be dead, I wouldn't be sad anymore. At least in death, I would find peace. And as soon as that moment passed, I slowed down the car and I screamed in the loudest voice, why? Why couldn't I shake this grief after a year? Why was I thinking about suicide, something I had never thought about before and didn't think about again? And why couldn't I just be happy again? And so I'm familiar with these feelings that David had at the beginning of Psalm. And I think you guys might be too. These feelings David has are not rare, but most of us have experienced them at one point or another. Maybe you've experienced them when you've lost a loved one. Maybe you experience it when you turn on the news and you hear about another school shooting or war or natural disaster and you can't figure out why they just don't stop. Maybe you feel it when your son or daughter walks away from the Lord and you have prayed for that son or daughter every single day of your life and you just can't figure out why. This psalmist, he's not afraid to tell God how he truly feels. He lays it all on the table. He even goes as far as to ask God if he's hidden himself or if he's forgotten him. What David's doing is cathartic. So the idea behind something being cathartic is that it provides psychological relief through the open expression of strong emotions. 
Have you ever felt really good after a long cry? Because it's cathartic. Have you ever felt really good after finally telling the truth about something that you've locked inside for a long time? Because telling the truth can be cathartic. And so what David's doing is he's being honest with God, and with that honesty, he's able to start to experience psychological relief. And when you and I, when we choose to be honest with God, we can begin that process as well. In verses 3 and 4, the psalmist pleads to God for help. He asks God to look on him. He wants to know God hasn't abandoned him. He wants this reassurance that he's there even when he can't feel it. How many times have I prayed, give me a sign, Lord, help me know you're here with me? About 10 minutes ago when I was sitting in that chair. (laughs) He then asked God to give light to his eyes. Or in other translations, it means enlighten his eyes. He's not saying blind him with a flashlight, okay? This same phrase is used actually throughout the entire Old Testament in different scenarios that kind of help us understand the more descriptive meaning of what he says. So the first example is in 1 Samuel. There's this guy named Jonathan. You don't really have to know the backstory. You just have to know that he's famished, and he's ready to faint, and he can't take another step. And so he dips his rod in a honeycomb, and eats the honey, and it says his eyes were enlightened. And so in this scenario, the phrase is meaning that he was revived and he was ready to carry on. Also, I'm not ready to carry on, but just honey. But here we are. On multiple other occasions, it's used in reference to politics or war. And so when um, the person who's being afflicted, after they're relieved of their bad circumstances, their eyes are enlightened. And so what that means is they're um, relieved of the bad circumstance that they're going through. And so David, when he uses this phrase, he's asking God to revive him, relieve him, and give him strength to deal with what was happening to him. He was getting desperate for an end to his circumstances that felt never-ending. One commentary says this about sorrow. However true it is that sorrow is but for a moment, it seems to last for an eternity Sad hours are leaden-footed and joyful ones winged. If sorrows passed to our consciousness as quickly as joys, or joys lingered as long as sorrows, life would be less weary. How true this statement is. It feels like those valleys we walk through last forever. And then we finally get to that mountaintop experience, it feels like it's gone in the blink of an eye. But every moment seems long to those who are suffering. But what about those who, at the worst of their grief, they experience desertion? How much more sorrow hurts when we suffer alone? But verse 5 starts with this small but mighty word, but. Up until this point, this psalm sounds pretty hopeless. David has cried out in despair. He has claimed God has left him for dead. And then we read the word but, and we know the story isn't over. But implies the contrary to what is already being discussed. Therefore, if it's something negative that's being talked about, we can expect something positive coming and the opposite. We actually learned this at a really young age. If you think about when we say, we can't go to the park today because it's raining, but maybe we can go tomorrow. Or we can't go get ice cream tonight, but we can make cookies. Children, they're really sad until they hear the word but, and then their eyes start to sparkle. But is an important word. The entire psalm turns around with this simple word. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. 
God's love for us is limitless, it's unconditional, and it's abounding, and that is the love that the psalmist chooses to trust in, and it's the same love you and I can choose to trust in. Now, theologians are unsure whether these last two verses were written after maybe God had answered David's prayer, or if he wrote it while experiencing that grief and just knows to trust in God. And what's cool is one commentary pointed out that we can actually use this ambiguity to explain our life of faith. Let me explain. This very ambiguity, the fact that we don't know when the psalmist wrote these words, however, is a theological gain, for it invites the interpreter, us, to view complaint and praise as simultaneous rather than separate moments. Thus, the ambiguity and complexity of the psalm actually represent the ambiguity and the complexity of the life of faith. As people of faith, we will always find it necessary to pray, How long, O Lord? Even as we simultaneously profess that the Lord has been good to me. My hope is that as long as we live, we'll be stuck in the same scenario that when we cry out to God, we are simultaneously praising him for who he is. In fact, Christianity is built on this duality of sorrow and hope. We live in this reality of Jesus dying, this horrendous death on the cross, and the pain and the suffering and the grief it brings, but realizing the necessity of that pain. While we also look to the resurrection of Jesus and the hope and the promise of redemption that that bears. Guys, we can't have the resurrection without that cross. Charles B. Kuzar writes this, Instead of discovering that sufferings may be endured for a time because the sufferers will ultimately be vindicated, we find in the text that the resurrection power comes to expression in the very midst of tribulations. We as Christians, we're going to suffer, but amidst our suffering, we can find that small glimmer of hope in Jesus. We can hold on to it, and we can let it grow and pull us out of that darkness that surrounds us. For example, um, I finally decided to follow God's call in my life in early 2021. Within a month of accepting the call, my life that I loved and I was on the mountaintop, it began to crumble. My sister, who's not only my best friend, my biggest cheerleader, and my closest family member, she moved to Greece indefinitely to be a missionary. And then my two foster girls who I loved like my own biological daughters, who we were told by the agency would be a part of our family forever. There was a whirlwind event, and they immediately and unexpectedly left and moved in with their mom in a different state, and I was gutted. And then one of our cats got kidney disease and died within a month. And then we got two new foster girls, and we got so excited and so hopeful, and a super traumatic event happened, and they also left. And then our other cat, he died unexpectedly in surgery. He was healthy until then. And then, in early 2022, I suffered a miscarriage, the most painful ending to the most painful year. But through it all, I had some pretty amazing things to praise God for. I got to, and I get, still get to, work for an organization whose sole purpose is to show God's love to the Lakeshore community. How cool is that? And I get to work at a church where I have the most amazing co-workers, and I also have an amazing boss, Pastor Aaron, who in my time of grief, he sat with me, and he prayed with me, and he prayed for me, and he still does. And I know not all of you have that kind of boss, and I am so thankful. 
I also had family and friends who loved me just as much as I loved them and grieved with me through each loss. That year has left scars on me, but amidst the grief and sorrow, I was able to come to church each Sunday and worship God with all my heart because I know that even though the hard times, they don't stop coming, God is present with me through them all. And the things that break my heart and make me grieve, those are the same things that God feels broken about too. He grieves with me. God is good even when our hard times don't feel like it. God is present with us, and he loves us. And so sometimes our prayers, they aren't answered. Sorry, they are answered, and that's amazing, and I'm thankful for those things. But sometimes that exact thing we prayed against every single day happens, and that is heartbreaking. And now there are times when bad things happen because we make bad choices. If I choose to speed down the highway, I can't be shocked and surprised when I get a speeding ticket. Or someone chooses to embezzle funds from an organization, they can assume that if they're going to get caught, they're probably going to end up incarcerated. But I do think there are a lot of bad things that happen to us that are at no fault of our own. God doesn't make bad things happen to us. God didn't kill my mom for an ulterior motive. He doesn't make our children walk away from him. He doesn't make bad car accidents happen, and he doesn't give people terminal illnesses. Bad things are a result of the broken world that we live in. I'm going to say that again. If you're doing the Sudoku, put it down for a second. I want you to get this. Bad things are a result of the broken world that we live in. But amidst those bad things happening to us, God does promise us things that are really important to remember during our time of grief. He promises to be with us. He promises his peace that passes all understanding. He promises rest when we are weary and burdened and we don't think we can take another step forward. And best of all, he promises to redeem this broken world in the end. Revelation 21.4 states, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. Life is hard, but there's hope because we know the ending. Some of us, we get to see God's redemption to some of our hard circumstances while still living this life, and I am so thankful for that. Like when God brings those prodigal sons home, when God restores that broken marriage where you had no hope left, where God shrinks those tumors. We are so thankful for those glimpses. But sometimes, God isn't giving us that redemption until after Jesus returns. Our loved ones that have died They're not coming back. The warring probably isn't going to end. Greed, lust, and pride, they're going to dominate this world. But no matter whether we experience redemption now or in the future after Jesus' return, we can still know that we will get to see the redemption eventually. And that's the hope we need to hold on to. One of my favorite examples of someone choosing to praise God amidst a storm is seen through the life of Horatio G. Spafford. 
And so he's the guy who wrote the song we sang earlier, It Is Well. He didn't write the new version that we sang. He wrote the hymn version. Um, and he wrote this at a time where he had lived through catastrophe after catastrophe. In 1871, his only son died of pneumonia. Within that same year, he lost his entire business in the Great Chicago Fire. And then less than two years later, him and his wife and his kids were supposed to travel to Europe, and he ended up staying back at the last second. And so his wife and his kids, they traveled, and there was a giant shipwreck, and all four of his daughters, the rest of his children, they died. And he found out about this via a telegram from his wife. And so he decided to hop on a boat and get to his wife as fast as possible. And it was during this transatlantic passage where he had just lost his children, he wrote the words to this very song. The first verse of the song says, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio believed that no matter what happened to him, he could trust in God and say it was well with his soul. And so how do we get to the point where we can sing that it is well with my soul even after our children die? Just to be clear, I don't think there's a magic formula. And sometimes our grief, it turns into depression, and sometimes then we need a therapist, we may need medicine, and I encourage you to seek that out if that happens. But I also think that God calls us to live a life and to do certain things that in our time of grief, we can still be reminded of God's goodness and we can still help find that hope of redemption. I think the most important thing is to don't do what I did when my mom died. Don't distance yourself from the church or from God. Pat Westlow, one of my dear friends, told me that when her husband was dying of cancer, he said, after I die, you better not sit around and mope around the house. You better get out of the house. You better go to church. You better continue living your life. And she has. And if you know Pat Westlow today, you know she's one of the most joyful people that I have ever met. I think what her husband told her is great advice. Because when you think about it, when you sit at home and you're sad, you get stuck in this rut of, why me? But when you get out of the house, when you talk with God and you talk with others, we give ourselves this break from those intrusive thoughts and feelings. And we're giving ourselves this chance to be reminded of the hope that we as Christians have. John Wesley, the founder of the Wesleyan tradition, and also um, the tradition that the Church of the Nazarene is a part of, he believed that in order to have a well-rounded spiritual life, that Christians shouldn't only tend to themselves, but they should tend to others by serving them. He called these acts of piety and acts of mercy. And so acts of piety, those are things like going to church, reading your Bible, receiving communion, which we are going to do later today. And acts of mercy, those are things like visiting the sick and those in prison, comforting those who are grieving, working to change the systems that hurt and victimize people. And now it may seem like I just jump from one thing to the next, but trust me, there's a reason. Because I think those same acts of mercy and acts of piety are things that can help us heal. Those inward acts of going to church, praying and reading the Bible give God a chance to give us his peace, remind us of his love, and make us aware of his presence. 
And those outward acts of spending time helping others who are hurting can remind us that we are not alone and there are others who may suffer from the same grief or may have different grievances. Lord, um, we just really, truly are thankful for you. Sorry, I got to pray to get back on track. Okay, so... They give us this new perspective when we get out and we experience brokenness in the world with other people. It helps us see that sometimes we can do God's redemption because God calls us to be his hands and feet here on this earth. And sometimes the brokenness that someone else is experiencing is something that we can help God solve. And for example, if there is someone and their brokenness and their grief is because they are homeless and they don't have a job and they don't have a meal on the table— When we help them find a job, find a home, then we are helping God redeem the brokenness in their life. When we serve others, we help experience that redemption here on earth. So there's no timeline for when we should be over grief. There's no eight-step plan to full healing. There are times when I struggle to sing those words on that screen during worship, and there's times when I can't even worship and all I can do is cry. I think some things are going to leave scars on us that are stuck on us until Jesus returns. I still feel an ache in my heart when I think about my mom, and it's been 15 years since she passed. Those scars, though, God is going to erase them when Jesus comes back, and we will get to experience full healing eventually. So maybe you're listening today, and you're mad at God because of something that has happened. Maybe your loved one has died. Maybe your spouse has left you. Maybe your child turned away from the Lord. Maybe you lost your job or someone has abused you. First of all, I am so, so sorry. My prayer for you today is that you can be honest with God and that with your honesty, you're able to feel his peace that passes all understanding and you can begin that healing process. I pray that you don't shy away from the church And that when you are in the church, that you feel the love and support from those who are here. And maybe you're listening today and you've had a pretty great life and haven't experienced sorrow this deep. My prayer for you is that if you know others are experiencing it, that you would be patient with them. Like I said, there's no timeline. That you would listen to them, don't talk over them. And that you would be an encouragement to them. And when you do happen to experience that sorrow yourself, you would remember to be honest with God and cling to that hope we have in him. Let me leave you with this today. We, as Christians, are going to grieve. But through honest prayer and finding hope and healing within our church community and from God, may we be able to sing, It is well with my soul amidst our sorrow. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for not letting me puke or cry, but also thank you so much that you are present here. Thank you for this hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you for this example we have in Jesus who experienced such grief, and yet there is so much hope because of him. Lord, I pray for all of those people here today who maybe this sermon hit them pretty hard and they're feeling a lot of emotions. I pray that they could go home and they could cry out to you, Lord, and that you would give them that peace, that peace that I know all too well. Lord, I pray for patience for those 
who are around others who are grieving. Sometimes it feels like their family member is never going to be back to normal. And Lord, they may never be back to normal, but we pray that you would give patience to those family members. We pray that today, as we all take communion, that you would help us confess our sins to you, that you would help heal us and make us new people in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.